Hey everybody, welcome back to Tech Strong TV. I'm Charlene O'Hanlon and this is the Tech Strong Women series, episode number two. We have a great lineup today, but I wanna say hello to my co-host first, Tracy Bannon of MITRE. You're the DevOps advocate over at MITRE, correct? I am, thank you. Uh, architect, engineer, and kind of a herder of people. So thanks for you know always being a, a great posse roundup here. Yeah, well, I, I'm so excited about today's episode. We have Lisa Plagemeyer, who was the interim director over the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great, great. So uh, just a quick reminder, Tech Strong Women uh, is a uh, series that we recently kicked off here on Tech Strong TV. We wanted to celebrate the successes of females in the tech ranks while also talking about some of the challenges that they've had, not just as women, but also as technologists and experts in their field. So uh, hopefully this discussion will kind of help spur further discussions uh, around uh, equality and uh, moving beyond the gender norms so that we really have a much more equitable and parity, paritable uh, <laughs> workforce and, uh, and, and really, uh, you know, helping everybody understand each other. So we've had some, we've had one really great conversation and I'm really looking forward to this next conversation. I'm going to turn it over to Tracy because she's going to kick, kick things off today. Oh, thank you, Charlene. Um, so Lisa, first of all, thank you for agreeing to, to be our, our second guest on this. And now as I was taking a look at the list of women that we've been pulling together and studying who's out there and looking back at who we, we've spoke to for our first podcast or our first uh, video cast, um, I realized that there was a similarity between the two of you and between a couple other folks that are on our list to engage with. And that is you have a, a marketing background and a strategist background, and now you find yourself in the forefront of cyber in leading the charge from that perspective. I'm dying to know how you made your way into cyber from a strategy background. Well, I worked at a company, um, a technology company that used to belong to ADP, the big payroll processor and human, um, human uh, capital company. And we were in the automotive space. I started with Ford and then went into technology, but always in marketing. And um, the Jeep hack happened at Black Hat, right? Around the time of Black Hat th that year. And Nissan had a data breach and all these things started happening. We started seeing uh, OEM customers and um, car dealers get popped, right? Bank before the days of MFA, bank accounts getting wiped out by a keylogger because the office manager, you know, clicked on a fish. So, um, because we belong to ADP and we're a part of their uh, robust security program, we felt like we had a competitive advantage. And so, I started working with the security team so that we could do thought leadership around security. And this is a company that has half a billion consumer records. So, if you bought a car, if you've gone into the finance office and given them your social security number and your driver's license and all those things, that system was the was was the system that 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 uh, that, that was ours that housed all that data. So, and as you can imagine, car dealers are very busy places with uh, you know guest Wi-Fi and a lot of people coming and going and maybe the dealer isn't so tech savvy himself uh, and the auto industry in general um, you know is very heavily focused on on manufacturing and what it takes to pr protect um, research and development and manufacturing facilities but it, when it when it came to the broader um, 
ecosystem, it, you know, security was kind of a new thing. So I uh, started working with the security team, doing all that thought leadership, got us a speaking spot at JD Power Automotive Conference, things like that. And, um, and then ADP announced they were going to spin us off. This was in 2014. And we had four months to spin up our own security team and our own, you know, finance and HR and all those administrative fun- functions that Big Brother ADP had been uh, providing uh, were going to go away. And so the chief security officer came to me and said, I want you to join the security team. And I said, well, I'm in marketing. What am I going to do? And um, he said, well, we should keep doing thought leadership stuff. And we were starting to run workshops for car dealers and how to protect yourself. And um, and I, we were doing sales meetings with the manufacturers to talk about our security program up front in the sales process so that we weren't a hindrance uh, at the end of, you know, when the salesperson's like, just get this contract signed and the security team puts their hand up and says, no, wait, stop. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to facilitate sales. So if you think about it, this was a very forward thinking CISO from that perspective. This was back around 2013, 14. Um, And there weren't a lot of CISOs trying to facilitate their business um, quite that way. So I had the privilege of working for some really forward thinking people. But anyway, he said, yeah, we're going to keep doing that stuff. And then I need somebody to work on my board presentations and other, you know, sort of championing security and doing all the all the messaging that comes out of the security team. Like I wanted to go through you, and oh yeah, you need we need a training and awareness program. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you know, that's that stuff ADP makes us do once a year. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. People hate that stuff. And um and so he said, hey, you know what? I know a guy at an ad agency in Portland, a, pro- a production company. And having come from marketing, especially um, in the consumer world with selling cars and trucks. Um, I loved working with ad agencies, right? They're full of creative people. They're, you know, some of them have a screw loose, which makes them even more <laughs> crazy, <laughs> wacky, right? They can be some really wacky right. types. So we did our own in-house security awareness videos and just had an absolute blast. And then I submitted those to SANS has a, conf- a conference every year where they have a contest uh, called Video Wars. And I'd only been in that job for, I don't know, six months or a year. And I won the, my first SANS conference ever. And I won the Video Wars contest. Mm-hmm. So then I was off to the races. So that's how it all started. You know, in, a, in that role, there's a, a certain amount of happenstance. Um, but it sounds like, you know, what, a, what an amazing transition. Throughout this time, though, you, know, you came from a marketing background. You didn't, I, I don't know your undergrad, but I didn't get the impression that it was a, a marketing science. Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't a computer psychology. science background. It wasn't a security background per se. No, not at all. So as I, you're, I as hated, you're getting. I hated math. Well, as you're getting, as you became more and more in, you know, invested in the security side of it, and it had to become much, you know, more savvy as you went, really understand the concepts. Mm -hmm. Was there a point in time where you thought, okay, I'm talking about this, but what if they know that I'm haven't been doing this for 25 years, that I'm not, you know, I I am an advocate and a champion for this, and I'm tech savvy and knowledgeable. Like I call that the imposter syndrome. Have you ever, you know, found yourself thinking about that in the role you're in? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think everybody who has ever worked in training and awareness, who came from a soft skill background, maybe came from corporate communications or marketing or even um, HR, they will all tell you that they get into those meetings that are highly, highly technical and they're just trying to hang with it, man, right? They're just trying to follow a conversation. And and they always feel like the redheaded stepchild on that team. Uh, But the reality is that I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had you know, maybe an engineer working in the SOC come to me one-on-one 
and say, here's the problem. We got to tell people about this. Can you, and I don't know how, can you do that for me? So you do have, um, you do have uh, superpowers that a lot of very gifted folks that, you know, STEM gifted folks don't have. And the sooner you get comfortable with that yourself, um, and you can make sure that people understand that it's not my job, you know, to, to work in the SOC. It's, it's not my job to read logs. It's not my job to teach the OWASP class to the developers. It's, it's my job to um, run the program for the developers, make sure we get them trained and we get them, get them wanting training. So I, ha I had a VP of marketing years ago who used to say to me, we don't need to feed them lunch. We need to make them hungry. And everybody who knows me knows I overuse that phrase. But when I ran a developer training program, if you think about, um, you know, am I just going to assign this to people? Am I going to, you know, first of all, I have to go through the process of getting the heads of engineering to agree to it all that, you know, we're going to, we're going to take all these developers off of their job coding and, and we're going to have X amount of hours that they're going to spend learning about secure coding. Um, that's a persuasion uh, a project in itself to get the business to agree to that. Um, and then I've got to, you know, I'm going to what push all these developers through this program or would I rather pull them through this program, right? Do I want to make them hungry for this? I used to say when I first joined the security team, like we should be the cool kids in school, right? Like how often is security the topic, not just on the nightly news, but in TV in movies, it's all over our pop culture and where those guys get to do cool stuff. So how do we how do we build that aura around us? Like how do how do we make it desirable for the rest of the business to want to work with us? You know, there's so many security professionals that are constantly trying to like get their foot in the door. You know, if you don't work at a defense contractor or financial services institution, if you work maybe at a technology company where the CEO doesn't get up every day thinking about security, then you've got to persuade and cajole and and convince the business um, of some of the things they need to be need to be doing. And, um, and so that's, that's a valuable, being able to persuade is a valuable skill. Just ask any social engineer. It's and You it's are so important. perfectly suited for the role that you're in or for the, what you've been doing, right? How do I market this? How do I sell this? How do I tell the story? How do I meet people where they are and, and make them hungry? And I, I would... I would say to people that sit in those meetings that think like I can barely hang with this conversation, right? Um, a couple of tips there. Find I used to say that I would seek out the people who spoke Lisa. Like who can describe this? Here's this concept that I don't understand. I need somebody to explain this to me in words I do understand. And some people are good at doing that. And some people aren't. Depends on how you learn, how you hear things. And so seek out those contacts in the company that you can go to after that meeting and say, hey, you know what? There's this one part that I didn't get. Can you boil this down for me. And then the other thing I'd say is like that fear and trepidation that you, that you feel sitting in that meeting thinking like, oh boy, do they all know I don't get this? I don't get this. Like that, the, the feeling of panic that you have, um, where you're, you know, your, your, uh, uh, pulse starts to race a little bit <laughs> and you just yeah. start to feel anxiety about that in that moment. That's when you need to think about like, okay, what, why am I here? I'm not here to be an engineer. I'm here to, you know, message whatever this is or, or create training about or write an article about it or whatever I'm here to do. And so what do I need to get out of this meeting to serve that purpose? And, and how do I find some quiet confidence in the fact that that's the superpower that I brought to this meeting? 
So all that understanding your personal context. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Charlene. Go ahead, please. I, I find it interesting that you have um, kind of become, a, you, you started out as basically a marketing moving into what is essentially an evangelist role uh, for the security department. And having that superpower, if you will, of communication has helped you kind of move beyond, uh, you know, that, that traditional marketing role into doing doing the, the training videos and, and eventually leading an organization. So do you think that because you had uh, you had those soft skills that um, a lot of the security uh, organization or personnel and, and IT people who freely admit to not being people people and they, they don't really like to talk to other people because mm-hmm. sometimes they, you know, just don't really like to do that. Do you think that that's actually um, been uh, kind of a catalyst for you and in, in moving forward uh, as as you did? Because uh, it sounds like you you know all the pieces were in place for you. I think if I understood your question correctly, so I think um, when I think about all the that one of the things that attracted me to security, the, the team that I was able to work with. Um, was that they were they were do-gooders. They want to see the right thing happen, right? They they have a real they have real moral clarity around right and wrong, uh, which sometimes in the world of sales and marketing can get a little blurry. Uh, and I was kind of tired of that, to be honest. Um, especially when you're selling software, it's a little different when you're selling a car or truck, right? But um, in the world of technology, there's a lot of stuff that, that gets that gets marketed that often do, doesn't deliver. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I was looking for a little more clarity there. Um, and a lot of them have a history of service, right? They they uh, maybe they worked in federal law enforcement or or um, served in the military. They they want to serve others and they want to see the right thing happen. And I found it super super refreshing to to work with those people. Number one because I was in awe of them. And, um, and then number two, I felt like it was a privilege to be their voice. Right. Because like you said, a lot of them didn't have the soft skills, you know, or they, they, um, they were on the tip of the spear, right? They're, they're out there on the front line, um, protecting the company every day, protecting these half a billion social security numbers and those consumers. And, um, and the things that they deal with and the things that they see, nobody else in the company has to see or has to deal with because they've done their job so well. And, um, and so to kind of be their voice, like when they came to me with a concern and they wanted, you know, can we get an article in the company newsletter about this? Or can we, you know, you know, I've got to go into this meeting. Can you help me with my slides? Because I got to talk to the business. Um, I felt privileged to, to help be their voice and to help, help them get to clarity of message. Because very frequently, because they are on the front lines and they're frazzled and they work long hours and all those things, um, when they try to communicate on some of these topics, their passion gets the the better of them, right? And it kind of reminds me of the guys I saw at RSA. I think it was in uh, 2020, the last RSA in person. There were some uh, people in a booth that literally had foil hats on. And you don't want to go to the business sounding like the foil hat guy <laughs> when you're going to go give a presentation. So I I felt I felt really. Um, I felt really privileged to be their voice and super appreciated um, because they knew that, that, you know, there's stuff happening in the security team sees all day that the rest of the company needs to be aware of, but in a way that, um, you know, gets us to our business goals. 
Well, I love I love the fact that they you entered into your relationship with them, if you w- want to call it that, with a, a an, a level of respect that they already had for you and for your soft skills, your ability to be their voice. And sometimes I don't feel as though, especially with with marketing folks, and and we we covered this in our last conversation, uh, that sometimes marketing isn't viewed that way, and that they're the kind of you know, it's kind of the, it's not a technical division. It's not a technical organization. And so it's maybe sometimes viewed as kind of less important than other areas in an organization. So I love the fact that, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's not, it's not really integral at the end of the day, but I love the fact that because you entered the role as an evangelist, there was that level of respect because they did see you as their mouthpiece. So I, I, I think that's that's amazing. It's, it's an interesting um, comment that when you talk about having that, that ability to message or to sell, right? The ability to mm-hmm. sell ideas. So if you're familiar with MITRE, if you're familiar with FFRDCs are federally funded, they're research and development corporations, amazing engineers and architects and all kinds of, of technical folks, PhDs, um, just I've never been in a room where I'm the, the most educated. I'm always the, the poor schmuck in the corner. Um, and and I and the reason I, I say that is that I'm finding across the board that 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 technique, that being able to sell a concept, when you use the term marketing, when you use the term sell, there's a, a pullback from that. Somehow that's not technical, it's not pure. That's that those are words. But what your team showed you, and I'm, I'm hoping that as folks listen to this and watch this, they realize that diversity on the team that you have is exactly what we're seeking, right? We need to have those different right. skill sets, those different superpowers, right? Isn't it the League of Heroes that they have and all kinds of different capabilities, not just one? Wonderful that, that they were able to do that. Was there ever a point before that, Lisa, as you were coming into this role or as you're growing through this? where they didn't, you didn't feel that they were hearing your voice yet or you were stepping into the role and having to, I don't know. Um, um, since I've been in security more early in my career as a woman in automotive. Um, that was definitely more challenging times. It was old voice network. There were things that were acceptable back then that are no longer acceptable today. So noted. So um, noted. Yeah, I think that was uh, especially working Um, you know, I interned in a factory setting, walking the factory floor where, where Chevrolet was building blazers. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when I first went to work for Ford, uh, you know, they hand you the keys to a company car and a map of North Carolina and say, go get them. And it's, you know, you're, you're 20 something female from Detroit talking to car dealers in the, in the South. So it was, um, that was challenging. And I had a sales quota, wholesale quota, um, so that was that was a little bit more challenging because um, those type that relationship that franchisor franchisee relationship is very much just that relationship driven, and so um, figuring out how I'm going to get a forty or fifty something year old male, ninety nine point nine percent of the time male car dealer dealer principal to listen to what I have to say to help him market and sell cars and trucks that was. That was a huge challenge. If I if there was ever a time that I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, it was probably then. And then, and then I had the privilege of working for Ford um, in Europe, 
and worked in the Middle East and Northern Africa and Eastern Europe in the 90s. Um, those years after the Berlin Wall came down and, and we wanted to sell cars and trucks to people who'd been on wait lists for 10 years for a Vartborg or a Trabant. And, um, and I think dealing then in, in developing markets um, in some of the, uh, you know, we used to call the third world, now we call the developing world in, in, uh, in the Middle East and then North Africa and Eastern Europe back then too, after the wall fell. Um, that was a challenge, very male dominated, you know, things, like I said, there's things that are acceptable in other countries. There's things that are legal in other countries that we're not used to in, in the United States. One of my early bosses at Ford, when I asked him about sort of career planning, because in the U.S. they did, back then in the 90s, they did longer range career planning with, with women and had more frequent coaching and counseling sessions, they would call them, similar to a performance review. You get to Europe, they don't do those things. And as a matter of fact, when I asked one of my early bosses, this is a long time ago, these people are long retired, what was the career plan? Like, what's next? Like, I've been in this role for X number of years, like, you know, what's what's on the horizon um he said well what are your husband's plans and i said my husband doesn't work for ford motor company (laughs) (laughs) that was not illegal for him to ask me that at ford of germany that was that was what they were getting at was you know we were talking about maybe an overseas assignment i went i ended up going to the uk from germany um and so that's kind of where he was going was like well your husband's job move how would that work you know but in the U.S., that would have been that would have been against the rules to ask uh, uh, somebody of either gender that that question. So, um, so I think having had the uh, the fortune to live abroad for 13 years really made it. Uh, you know, I know in this country right now, there's a, a lot of people that that look at all the things that are wrong. Um, but I think having lived abroad for so long and traveled in developing countries for so long, it's made me realize um, we have a really good, this is a great place. (laughs) And and, um, we've, I think in some instances, we've kind of taken that for granted and and re-baselined. And um, there's just a, you know, there's a, there's the plight of a lot of uh, uh, women in a lot of countries around the world, even countries we would think, you know, at that time, this is Germany in the nineties, you would think it's a pretty sophisticated place, right? Western Europe. Um, But it, wasn't quite where we were yet, you know? And um, so I think um, all those situations kind of molded me back then. And, um, you know, going into a distributorship in a Middle Eastern country as a female in the nineties to talk to a room full of men, like I I had to check my imposter sister syndrome at the door. (laughs) I could not go in there. Uh, not knowing what I was talking about or not, or showing any, you know, because it, it could often be a strain, strained relationship depending on the distributor and the manufacturer. Um, you know, if you have a tough message to deliver, for example, from coming from Dearborn, you know, from on high, um, you, you just got to put, put on your big boy pants. <laughs> I mean, so can we say that? Can we say that? Wait, wait, big, say that? <laughs> big person pants. Big person, big person pants. <laughs> just so just kind of suck it up and get on with it, you know? So, so do you think that that actually changed the, your perspective then when you came back to the States on on the way that, that, uh, that you know, it, the, the dynamic within an organization? I mean, you did say that we have it so much better here. In the I States. had been through much, much bigger challenges 
um, you know, interning on a factory floor, working with car dealers, being the only woman in the room this most of the time, mm -hmm. um, that I kind of came back thinking, what are y'all talking about? This <laughs> is okay, cool. Did, did that also change the way that you interacted with people? I mean, was it because I, I do notice that, you know, obviously the way men and women communicate to not only to each other, but, you know, amongst themselves. So, you know, women talk to women differently than women talk to men and vice right. versa. Did, did you find that, that the way that you started communicating with, uh, with men and with other women changing because of the way you saw the way things had to be done in Europe and it was much more male dominated and forceful mm -hmm. and that, you know, did that kind of force yeah, you to, I, to think that way and early in my career I, I met some women leaders in automotive I don't want you to give get the impression that there weren't any but so many of the ones that I met even while I was interning meeting very senior females in General Motors for example they I, I felt like they were competing to be men you know I felt like they there was it I do think that I was able to successfully navigate still being myself, still, still um, being a woman in that world as, as opposed to feeling like I had to be one of the boys. Um, that is something that I think changed in, in my lifetime. Uh, I don't think my daughters who are young adults necessarily feel like they have to be one of the boys to, to be in the work situations that they're in. And one of my daughters is in STEM. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a, a good thing has <laughs> changed yeah. in my lifetime. Um, I think what really made a difference for me when I transitioned into security was the boss that I had. And, and uh, he was a man that under, understood how to mentor a woman. So it's different. And, and I went to, um, not to harp on automotive, but I went to uh, Automotive News, which is the big industry mm -hmm. uh, rag in that space. It's a Cranes publication. They have a thing called Leading Women Every Year, a conference. And a couple of years back, before I left the auto industry, um, I was attending and, and um, there was, you know, fantastic speakers, leaders in the auto industry. Um, and one after one, they all got up and as they were telling their stories, given their presentations, there, you realize that there was this theme throughout of them feeling like they weren't ready for the next step every time it was time for them to take that next step. And um, that I've actually read a little bit more about that. That's kind of a documented thing that if you, if a boss says to a male member of the team, you know, I think you're ready for this next job. And the male is thinking, oh, I feel about 80% ready, but like, that's good enough. Let's go. Right. If a woman feels 80% ready, she's like, nope, I got to get that. Not that twenty percent before I'm, I'm going to feel comfortable. We're more risk averse, mm -hmm. and um, and I think it's it takes our male bosses often to be able to say, you know what? I know you don't think you're ready, but I think you're ready, and so we're going to do this. And every single one of those women had that same dynamic in her career. We all had that in common, and I I've seen that in my own life personally. And, um, and I do think it's, we kind of have to get over ourselves a little bit, right? Like we're, we're, we're more concerned than if, if we're more worried than our boss is, then like, what are we worried about? Right. 
So do you think the next generation, I mean, you said you have, you have daughters. Do you think the next generation uh, is feeling that way also? Do you, or do you think that that's kind of changing uh, as the, the workforce does become much more uh, integrated, uh, for lack of a better word, but it, you know, it really does more reflect society today? Absolutely. I mean, I have a daughter who's in her last year uh, of her engineering program, and um, she's at a, a co-op school at Northeastern University, and so she's co-oping right now at, at, at Bain Consulting. And she, through all the, I mean, she her first co-op was a construction company where she got to put on a hard hat and go to construction sites. Um, and then her second one was with a law firm where uh I'd hazard a guess that, you know, the majority of the lawyers there were male. Um, she's never once said to me, like, you know, like I've never seen any hint at imposter syndrome in her. I've only ever seen like this confidence to just keep pushing ahead. She's a really driven individual and super bright. I'm really proud of her. And, um, and I just don't see her coming up against some of the same stuff that I had to come up against at that, at that age. You know, I don't, I'm, I hope nobody at the law firm was catcalling her, but it's not a factory floor, right? That's, that's, that's not it's happening. A, yeah. That's an interesting, um, it's an interesting observation that we tend to think and observe. I have a, I have a granddaughter and her journey looking at is she going to face quite the same things um mm -hmm. and no I, I don't think so i tell the story at the as i led a jazz session at the end of this i'm in my glory i'm whiteboarding and there's an engineer a bridge engineer at the end of the table and when it was all done he came over and patted me on the hand and said you did a good job so i don't think anybody's oh yes i can tell you his name but i won't do that um <laughs> and my kids know that story but i don't my daughter won't have that story but I'm wondering what the story will be because we, the moment that we stop talking about diversity, the moment we let our guard down, we're not, we're not solid in this yet. Mm -hmm. We can have some backsliding. Um, so I still do think that as much as I don't want my adjective to be woman, architect, woman, engineer, mm -hmm. I'm still proud of my adjective or I'm should, should I say, I'm still proud of my identity. Do you, do you see any anything with the, the younger women in your tribe, those that are behind you that you're mentoring, that you're bringing along? Are there obstacles that you're seeing in their path that might be different than the ones that you faced, but could still be tied to their identity? I think women have, they don't have that bravado. I don't, I don't think that we necessarily um, come out of the womb with that kind of bravado that men have. Right. That's sort of that's sort of like, yeah, I'm just going to go kill it. Right. Like I like I got this. We're just um, and I see it, you know, with a lot of teams that I've worked with. It's it's literally just confidence. You know, it's just plain old fashioned, like believe in yourself. You know, it's it's really that simple. Um, I know that's hard to do, but it comes with it comes with time and it comes with accomplishments. You know, I think the more we're able to get done, you know, the more I've always kept, um, a me folder in my, <laughs> on my, on my laptop, right? Like those times when you're like, wow, I hit this project out of the park or that meeting went really well, or, you know, compiling that somewhere. And, you know, every couple months go back and look like, okay, when I'm not feeling like I'm getting anything done or I'm achieving anything, or I'm not feeling incredibly confident, being able to go back and look at like 
I did this and I did that. I got this done and I got that done. And that can really fuel your sense of, of, um, of self and your sense of, of confidence. Um, I think we're our own worst critics. I was uh, in a, on a team that I was truly the only female and I did something very similar, but I would print it out and I would tuck it under my keyboard. And every once in a while, I would just need to pull that back and see the number of snippets and things that were there. That was my me. Yep. And there was a, a self-actualizing that comes with it. Yep. There's probably another good conversation for another day that talks about kind of the human brain and how things are wired. My husband coaches um, men and women, boys and girls, um, and he talks very adamantly about observing differences, uh, you know, when they get to a point when they, they get into puberty and how he sees, yeah, he tells the, tells the young man, you know, kick it, you know, kick it this way, kick it that way. You know, you're doing it the wrong way. He kind of has to beat him up a little bit because they're like, no, it's not my fault. He can make the same comment to a woman or to a, a girl. Um, and she internalizes it as though it's a character thing. Yep. So it's a kind of interesting that he brings that up when we're talking about you know, raising kids that way. Um, yeah, I mean, equality doesn't mean treating everybody the same, right? We're individuals, we're different people. It, it means knowing, you know, being sensitive enough to understand. I mean, your, your husband's smart enough to understand or sensitive enough to see those differences and then to vary his, his response accordingly. And that's really what it's about. It's actually about like, if you think about it from a marketing world uh, terminology perspective, it's about personalization and differentiation right. um, more than it's about sameness. You right. just made a big difference in my life, Lisa, you, <laughs> because you said it's okay to acknowledge the differences and it's okay to tailor to that so that you can meet somebody where they are and get the most out of them. Thank I don't you. think we want to live in a world where everything is the same. No, no, yeah. no homogenization. Please. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So. I think that, um, you, especially over the last, I would say 10 years or so, I think organizations have really started to recognize that there are differences in, in the way uh, males and females work and are most productive and Sometimes to get the, the best level of productivity out of them, you've got to meet them on their terms. And I think that that is a brand new way of thinking that organizations maybe, you know, they, they especially HR organizations, they've never really kind of thought about before. But it seems to be, especially now with so many uh, people who are working remotely full time, I think they are recognizing the, the differences in the way males and females work and they're celebrating that they're 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 saying you do what you need to do and uh and and we'll you know we'll 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 make it work uh, around you take it a step further charlene the generations i see a marked difference in the generations Absolutely. as well i had a team that was made up of of all 30 somethings and and early 30 somethings and we were traveling as a group and we were going sometimes two or three cities in a week um, and they all wanted to get into the same conference room at all times and work together all of them it's as though they were all getting a participation ribbon but they worked that way well it drove me batty, absolutely nuts. And so I had to figure out how can I be present with them and not absolutely drowned in the same room at the same time. Um, and so it was interesting to, to start to experience that with the different generations and I also see some of it culturally, regionally, um, even campuses, corporate cultures. 
um, diversity is so much more than than gender. It's a it's just a, a more natural place for us to start in having the conversation, don't you think? I th I think that one of the um, so I've been d diving into this a little bit because we're starting a program for. Um, kids at historically black colleges and universities who are studying cybersecurity or want to get into security privacy or risk. And we decided that one of the critical elements of the program is going to be a mentorship program. And so we've taken a look at other nonprofits running mentorship programs and, and how those work. And I've participated in a few myself. And I think, um, you know, we, we look at sort of, you talk about companies and programs and HR initiatives and all these things. When it, when you boil all that down at the end of the day, it's, it's a human talking to another human. Like those are the, you know, I can't think of a time um, when I look back on my career and, and it was some sort of like article from corporate comms that changed my life. Right. <laughs> some, right. Bash HR, but like, it was never like some big initiative from HR or some slogan that made the difference. It was some individual you know, saying something that I needed to hear, right? Or coaching me through a, a situation or helping me prepare for a meeting or something. Um, and and I see the same thing. Like when, when, you know, I had somebody that I was mentoring lately who reached back out to me a few months later and said, you know what, I work at X company now. I left where I was and, and you know, I got this new job and this happened and that happened. And it was because of this conversation that we had six months ago. And um, those are just one-on-one things and I and and so we're actually looking at the software tools now that you use to run mentoring programs um, because those help you do it at scale, right? Um, and I, I think I think those things are like the greatest things in sliced bread um, to just match up individuals. It's it's like dating, right? It's, it's an algorithm that matches the mentor and the mentee and uh, off they go and it's structured enough that people, you know, can get on calls with each other and their schedules can align and they can have some quality conversations. And I think um, I would encourage more people, especially people at, at uh, stage in their careers that, that I'm at um, to, to take it, you know, it can be as little as, you know, an hour a month to get on the phone with a young person yep. and, um, and just talk to them about their careers and their plans. And, and, it, and it's super rewarding. What, what do you think about, um, you know, when we are talking about mentoring and uh, especially with respect to uh, uh, people who are just entering the workforce, uh, I feel like uh, there are a generation, there is a generation now of people coming out of college who uh, really seriously have no idea what they want to do. Right. And um, they, you know, they went and they got an engineering degree or they got a criminal justice degree or whatever. They're like, now what do I do? They might not necessarily want to be in the in the field uh, that they got a, a degree in. Um, and, and I feel like organizations currently don't really uh, have um I, I, how do I say it? I, they, they're, they're not really considering those people who are not within their lane, for lack of a better word or better term, uh, as viable candidates for different positions. But I feel like we are missing out on an entire population of people who are, are smart, who want to learn, who, and, and, and females especially, they, they don't really feel like, you know, to our earlier conversation, don't really feel like they have the qualifications or the education to be able to do certain things that aren't within their major. So how, how, how do you see that kind of falling out? Do you think that we're maybe moving in, in a direction now where we, where we are recognizing the value in those yes. 
non-traditional employees uh, and uh, or, or do you think we've still got a long way to go as far as I, I hope so because the job market is so tight if you're an employer that isn't hiring for potential then you're missing out on a lot of people I think and and I talked to somebody who's got an open open rack yesterday who's looking for a unicorn and you know I talked about how look you know, some of the, I know some of the people that they're talking to for this particular role. And I said, you know, a lot of these people have the potential to do that. You know, you're, you're, you've got your checklist of things that you're looking for and, you know, you're hyper-focused on these two or three boxes that are empty on the checklist when you've got all these other things and this person has all this potential. I, I just think we, you know, yeah, maybe we're a little bit too picky. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to work. For I still don't know what I want to do. I still don't know what I want to do. Yeah. There's a, a fantastic term that I've, I've been acquainted with. It's called new collar worker. Um, and it is non-traditional. So it's not white collar, not blue collar, new right. collar. Let's take somebody and bring them in, especially we're talking about it in terms of technology. If I need coders, well, they might not be the architect or the engineer, but if I liken it to building uh, a house, well, they've got to learn to pound the nail somewhere. They've got to learn those, those skills. So let's not worry about which degree they have or certification or two-year program or one-year experience. Let's let's help them because the number of intelligent, amazing people out there is mind boggling. So I'm looking now another one of the um, diversity aspects is educational diversity. And, yeah. and I don't mean that it has to be multiple degrees. I mean, let's 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 really bring that to the table as well. You you are so spot on, Lisa, Charlene. I think ac academia bears a, has a role to play in this, too, because mm -hmm. a lot of the colleges these days, um, you can't you need to decide what school you're going to apply to mm -hmm. um you there's no switching back and forth without starting all over again i mean they've made it a lot of schools have made it absolutely impossible to change your major and you're so you're asking a, a 16 17 18 year old to know what they want to do for the rest of their lives right. and that's just kind of silly well i'll sound like a heretic um as a mother <laughs> of two that are college grads who are paying their own way at this point I think there are a lot of kids, a lot of amazing people who don't need to, who don't need a four-year degree. Um, mm -hmm. the, one of the most brilliant people I know, I uh, grew up in my hometown and, and he is a farmer and he also does robotics on the side and he's amazing, but he chose to not go. It didn't interest him to go. So intelligence is not only that degree. We need folks with advanced degrees. We absolutely do. At the same time, there are so many amazing minds out there. Yeah, there really are. Guys, I hate to wrap this up, but we are running out of time. But Lisa, thank you so much for being on Tech Strong Women. You are amazing. And thank you for I, having I, me. This was a blast. I had such a great time listening to your story. So fascinating. And, uh, and, it, and it's very inspirational as well. So thank you. And Tracy, you're awesome, as always. Thank you for being on the show again. Every, every show, I take away something that I learn and grow. So it's always worth it to be here. Thanks, guys. Thank All you. Right. We'll see you next time on Tech Strong Women. And please stay tuned. We've got lots more Tech Strong TV coming up.